The Law Report with Michael Matwening Bell, Kaya FM 95.9. A very good evening to you and welcome to The Law Report. Today we're doing quite a, an interesting profile. I've been looking forward to this show for quite some time. Um, we're going to be doing a profile on uh, Professor Japa Dawuni. She's many things. Uh, she's a professor, uh, she's a barrister, and uh, you're going to be learning quite a lot from her. And I think. Uh, you know, we've dedicated quite a lot this year in the celebration of women, and this is one of the women that we celebrate. Uh, and I'd like to refer to her as African Excellence. So that's the show tonight, and you can look forward to that. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuening Bell. A very good evening. And uh, before we start our show, uh, let's uh, say thank you to Dr. Cindy Fonsell. She's back again tomorrow. You can look forward to her. I have joining me on the line um, a Professor uh, Japa Dawuni, and um, and I and I think I look forward to um, engaging you, uh, Prof. Thank you so much for joining me on the Law Report. I've been looking very much forward to um, uh, this conversation. Are you well? Thank you very much, Mike, and thank you for having me on your wonderful show. I am well, thank you, and I look forward to having a conversation with you this evening. There's so much to to talk about, but uh, you know, like like anything, I like to start a conversation more on you know who is uh, 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 Professor Dawuni, where where do you come from, your origins, you know, just just to kind of put perspective on. You know, a lot of the times we speak to somebody and, and they are at the height of their career, but it didn't all start there. It started somewhere um, in some place with, with parents. Who, who's Dr. Uh, Dawini uh, and where, do you, where did you start your, your life's journey, as it were? Okay. Well, thank you. So I am Japa Dawini. I am from Ghana, which is located in West Africa. And I come from uh, a, a tiny uh, village in the northern part of Ghana. So those are my roots, that I, as far as I can trace them. Um, my, both my parents are Ghanaian, they are both deceased now, and I have four siblings. Mm. Um, that's about the, the general you know, introduction about who I am. And, and, and so, you know, Ghana, um, maybe give us a, a setting around the time that you would have grown up. What do we, you know, which, what time is this and, and what was your impression of, of your country? And I think for a lot of a lot of Afropolitans listening right now, um, in their mind's eye, what was your, you know, what was the Ghana that you grew up in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I grew up in a Ghana that was unfortunately, um, without necessarily putting my age out there, but in the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> and it was a time when, unfortunately, Ghana was still under military dictatorship or military rule, like many other parts of um, the continent. And I, I often joke that I was born at the height of my father or my parents' career, and I was um, taken to the hospital. My mother was taken to the hospital to deliver me to a motorcade, um, because the time when I was born, my father was a military um, person. He, he retired as a colonel in the Ghana Army. And under that military dictatorship of President Achampon at that time, he was one of the top um, government officials, you know, he was in the military, but also a government official in terms of being in politics. He was what we call maybe the equivalent of a governor of a state, if you're looking at it from the U.S. context. Mm. That was called the secretary of the region in, in Cape Coast. So I was born in, in, into a family that was really on the top. But as you know, that one military dictatorship precedes another. And so there was another military coup d'etat which ousted the government in which my father was serving. 
And so that meant that everything just went down from there. My father was thrown into military detention and he stayed there for over six years. So my mom had to take care of all um, five of us, five at that time, and manage the extended family system. And so it, it really was born into, um, let's say, grace, and then things really went down from there. Um, having to be a single mother in this sense for my mother and taking care of us, that she had the support of her mother, her maternal, uh, you know, my maternal grandmother, and other family members who were there to support her. And I give credit indeed to my mother, who is also deceased now, and especially my grandmother. And we'll talk more about why this is important in the way I see women's roles in society. That really, my grandmother held and supported my mother. My aunties were there as well to bring us all up. And I think they, they did a good job. Mm. And, 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 and so I find it interesting that, you know, when, when you first introduced the era in which you grew up, which is sort of under military rule, that your family was in fact at a point the rulers. But at some point, with the ruled um, uh, after the, the the coup that you described, and and I'm sort of juxtaposing those two scenarios with a scenario where we you subsequently in your profession um, deal in human and civil rights, um, and as as a profession and as a, as an area of interest, your your so so what it means is that, and I, and I think often people that have an interest in these areas of politics, of human rights, of civil rights they often have one point of view, and that's the point of view of being in the ruled, right? Outside of the elite. So you at a point would have been part of the elite. You would have point been part of the rulers. Your idea of, of you know, how has your idea of human rights been affected by your own personal experiences and how you grew up in, in pretty much two different worlds? Mm-hmm. Mike, I must say that's a very excellent observation you've just made. And yeah, absolutely right. You know, I, I, I grew up at that time when all of this was happening, when my, my father was put in political detention and all that. You know, those were really the formative years of my life. Mm. And so to say that I had a perfect recollection of what they meant, I don't think I do. But you know how you hear things over and over again, mm. and then you see pictures. I still have pictures of our family and all that. And so it's just like a movie in my brain that plays all the time. Mm. So all the stories about the places and around the world my parents traveled to, the people they engaged with, some of the souvenirs that we still have, that kind of constant reminder. But one thing that I remember, I think I remember that very well, it's when the ninth of the military um, uh, coup d'etat, or you know, around that time, the military that was doing the coup d'etat came around looking for all the quote unquote the top men. And so my father, being one of them, they came to our house and they banged on the door, you know, with the military shouting, open the door and all that. And my dad, hearing that, kind of, you know, used his military tactic and was able to flee the house without them seeing him. And so after they banged for a while and no one was opening, the, the front door of the, the house was a glass door. They broke through the glass door and came into the house. And so my mother was, my, my father had fled. My mother and my grandmother and the other people in the house had to hide all five of us, the children, um, in, a, in, a, in the master bedroom and cover us and make sure that we were not making any noise for them to know that we were there. Mm-hmm. Likely, they didn't harm any of us. So I think that kind of, you know, growing up as a child, that, that trauma is still something I recollect very well. 
But you're right that I, that also informed my, maybe not intentionally, but looking back now and being a professor of political science, um, you know, I study these things, regime change, democratization, transitions from military dictatorship or authoritarian regimes to democracies and, you know, the reverse transitions that happen sometimes. And so it's, um, it kind of informs me in terms of, one, that I really don't want to be engaged in politics. I, I like to study it and to teach other people about it. Personally, I don't want to engage in politics. I think partly because of my family's experiences. And um, this is not to say that, you know, in the future, I may not engage in some form of public politics. Mm. Because as you know, politics is everything. I tell my students, you come to the class, you, students will tell me, I don't like politics. And I said, no, do you know that the very idea of how you drove to the university and how you walked into this classroom is politics because it's a decision-making process of who gets what, when, and how. So you're right, elites, um, you know, people not considered elites or whatever different groups we have in society are all part of politics. We make decisions, and those decisions have consequences which can be good or bad. And therefore, I hope that in my teaching, and if I ever engage in any form of public politics, that I will take the route of doing the right, or making the right decisions that will lead to the right consequences for the masses of people. So, I mean, that's the life of politics, and I think you, you're very clear that you, you wouldn't want to you know, be in it in, in, in that way, at least, at least as you see it now. But what would have driven you in the first place to study politics? Um, I have to say my, my professional trajectory or educational trajectory has been an interesting one. So so going back, you know, now I can say I'm in the politics field. I started off as a lawyer. So I went to this law school in Ghana. I graduated. I was called to the Ghana Bar. So, you know, I'm an advocate of so the Supreme Court of Ghana. Mm-hmm. But the idea that motivated me going into law school or studying law was partly because I just saw someone, which we will talk about later, who was just the embodiment of everything that I thought I wanted to be. She it was in a magazine. I never met her. Um, a magazine, she was 29 years old. She had a PhD. And it was an ebony magazine, you know, based in the United States. And I just thought, I want to be like her. So mm-hmm. I cut out that paper. And 20-something years, I still have that image of her. And so my idea was to go to law school. And it was just part of that um, desire and need to protect people, to, to defend people, to do the right thing. So my motivation for going to law school was to become an international human rights lawyer, mm. someone who would go around the world and defend the rights of women and children. And because even as a child, I had seen some of the um, negative consequences of people's uh, you know, human rights violations. And so that, that was what informed me to go to law school. And then after law school, you know, I thought, okay, you know, hey, law school was long enough. You thought you finished and you really don't want to go to school anymore. But I had this constant desire for more knowledge. And I thought, I need to do something else. I need to find out what else is out there. So I went on to do my intern, my master's, and which was in international development, because I was also interested in issues of development and underdevelopment, which, as you know, feed into human rights abuses sometimes. Mm. And then after my master's in international development, I thought, you know, 
I, I, I still need to get some knowledge. I, I just want to go to the highest possible level of knowledge acquisition and through the formal process, you know, not to say that you have to get a PhD to be formally and uh, to, be, to be knowledgeable, but through the formal process. So I went on and did um, my PhD in political science. And that was partly because even though my master's was in international development, it was really under the broad category of international affairs. And so during that time when I was doing my uh, master's in international affairs broadly, I kind of was, I had always been interested in the United Nations and how it works. And I remember I had a professor who was from South Korea who used to, who nicknamed me Madam General Secretary of the UN. <laughs> so um, that drove me into doing uh, my PhD in political science and, and brought me within politics. So to, to end up on this, I would say that my trajectory has been low, development and politics, all of these three have focused on issues of women and gender. And I really haven't regretted it. I think they've come together nicely for me. I, I mean, your accomplishments, I, 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 I wouldn't even propose to read them all, but, but you, you know, some that, that certainly do stand out is you're a visiting scholar at Queen's University, a visiting scholar at University of Copenhagen, um, you are, you know, presently a mentor of the Obama Foundation Scholars, uh, Fulbright Specialist Scholar, uh, Global Fellow for the Wilson Center for Women in Public Leadership Program. I mean, your CV just goes on and on and on. And, 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 and all of these things are remarkable. But what I do note um, is that a lot of your work is pretty much in the U.S. And, and, and I'm just trying to, you know, one, I'd like to sort of ask my question in two parts. The first part is, you know, how you came to leave Ghana or even Africa, if you will, to find yourself in, in various parts of the world, uh, uh, predominantly the U.S., and and, and, and and I guess the second part is then what keeps you what keeps you there? You know, what took you there as somebody who hadn't been so Ghanaian fully with a Ghanaian perspective going there and, and second part is now that you have both a US international Ghana perspective, what keeps you there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what we, we, we often hear about being a, a global citizen. Um I don't think I've gotten global yet, <laughs> but it's and I think that the idea of global citizenship doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in a place. Yeah, I think it could also be a mental state. You know, so a person can very well be a global citizen just being in one village somewhere in Ghana. Yeah. Just like are you doing this I mean, interview <laughs> in and it's going to be broadcast in you know in South Africa, even though you yeah. are not currently sitting in South Africa. Exactly, exactly, mm. yeah. So, you know, the journey to the United States was kind of partly, you know, I grew up going to the, the UK and, 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 you know, Ghana, UK is just a six-hour flight um, most of the time. And so the U.S. was a part of the transition to my educational um, aspirations and coming to school here and then um, ending up being employed in, in, in this space. And, and I must say that it's, it's also that constant desire to give back mm. and that constant desire to see how I can really be a global citizen and, and, and help as many people as I can. And I think um, I've, I've been given the opportunity, you know, the initial idea I had about being that international human rights defender um, and realizing that I, I really couldn't deal with listening and reading about human rights abuses, especially when it comes to women and children. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'm just going to be going to the courtroom 
and crying instead of defending, <laughs> instead of prosecuting, because I really had a, a, I just couldn't stand those. And so I joke about it with my students and I tell them that my ambition of being an internationally acclaimed human rights lawyer, I realized that I am still a human rights lawyer. I just happen to do it in a classroom by giving them their human rights education. So <laughs> I'm still doing the human rights work because the right to education is a human rights value, I would call it. You know, of course, it's part of the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals, equal opportunities for education, quality education. So I think I'm still a human rights <laughs> lawyer. But how do I give back? I try as much as possible to, to spread myself in, in, in ways that I can contribute to different spaces. So, you know, the, the, the stuff you talked about, if I go to... Um, London, Queen Mary, or one out in, in Canada, um, Kingston, um, sorry, um, Queen's University in Kingston, um, uh, Ontario, or I also teach in Spain. All those uh, give me opportunities of engaging with a wider variety of people because when you give a public lecture, or I'm in Spain, when I teach in the university, they have students from all over the world come there. But those are ways in which I feel that I'm still contributing to the global space. And especially within the African context. Of course, I've been a visiting scholar, um, full by scholar in, in Ghana. I've been I've done work in Kenya. I've done lots of interviews in other countries, including Nigeria, Senegal, Dakar, um, uh, Gambia, um, Cape Verde. All those are, and of course, I've been to South Africa, so I'm glad to say hopefully I'll be coming back next year as a fellow. Um, but all these are ways in which I still give back to the African continent. Mm -hmm. In addition to the many professional associations and committees I serve on, and and it's important for me to give back to the continent um, of Africa and of course to other places where I find myself in at any given time. So lots of programming I do, whether it's through teaching, it's through research, it's through mentoring. And um, those are the ways in which I, I continue to give back to the continent. So I, I won't say that I'm totally detached. I won't say that I'm in the U.S. alone. My presence, and as much as I possibly can, I try to spread that presence across the board. If you've just tuned in, uh, I'm speaking uh, with Professor Japa Dawuni, um, with whom is joining me on the line um, all the way from the U.S.A. Um, I believe you're in Washington, yes? Yes, I am. Washington. Yes, all the way from Washington, D.C. If you've just tuned in, uh, stay tuned because we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue uh, our profile of uh, Professor Dawini. We're back after this. The Law Report with Michael Matwening Bell, Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back to The Law Report uh, with me, Michael Matwening Bill. We're speaking to Professor uh, Dawini. Prof, uh, before we, you know, we, we, we took the break, we, we, we were talking about your move from Africa um, to, to the U.S., and, and I think you explained it quite well that even, even though you might have moved physically, your work continues to have a global effect, and I thought that was quite a powerful, um, uh, you know, powerful opportunity I guess for you to have where you have uh, an, an opportunity to interface with so many people in the world but also I think one thing that we shouldn't um, uh, lose sight of is when you're doing all of these things you become the ambassador for our continent which is something that I must say we, we quite, we're quite proud of to, to hear of Africans doing such wonderful work and not just in the U.S. but in so many other countries. But what I wanted to touch on is, is something that I, I, I guess most professionals do get to deal with in, in some point of the career or another, 
Um, and that is decision time. You, you at some point a barrister practicing law in Ghana. And then you had to take the decision to, to leave all of that. What, what was that like and what were some of the driving points and, and, and why were you not afraid to fail? Why were you not afraid of going into this foreign land and leaving the comfort of your own country? And I think if I'm reading well, the situation is that you're in your own country, you would enjoy a level of historical prominence given the fact that your, your family has credentials or you know, pedigrees of, of political pedigree. Um, so it seems to me that you would have left a, quite a quite a, a cozy uh, home and and, vent- and and quite a cozy career. So a combination of the two left all of that to pursue the unknown. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, you know, I, 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 before I answer that question, I, I also would like you, you, you're right um, as uh, an, a Ghanaian or an African, and sometimes I'm wary of using the word African because people just use the word Africa as if it's just one place. So mm. I'm cautious about nowadays being intentional about using the word across the continent of Africa. So I stress that out, right? Mm. And I tell people, look at uh, And it's understandable given where you are based, where it looks... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, look, pick a country from Algeria to Zimbabwe and just don't say Africa. So you're right. It's also context. You're absolutely right. Context. So, I, you know, I, I want to say that, yeah, I, I feel that... Um, um, obligation, duty, joy of being one Ghanaian and two an African. Um, and therefore, you're right, I have to be an ambassador. And you yeah. know what that means generally for an ambassador. You are the front and, and, and the face of what you are representing. But within the African sense, it's also a heavier burden because you are representing and having to represent and highlight the positive and the, to change that negative narrative out there about the continent. So, like it or not, it's that extra responsibility you have to bear and you have to figure out how am I going to do this and do it very well. And, you know, if you're looking at it from an intersectional perspective, I'm not, I'm Ghanaian, I'm African, I'm a woman, I embody all, you know, and within the Ghanaian context, my ethnicity would come in. So all of these spaces have to be part of your mind and thinking whenever I am engaging in something. So it, it puts that, that better, and I'm happy to do it and I'm joyful to do it. But I also want to mention that before I come to your answer, is that I, I also think that we need to be celebrated, and I know we do it. The, the many other Africans on the continent, um, there are many people, as you know, who have greater credentials than me. <laughs> um, many people who are my age cohort or younger who will have greater credentials than me. And we have to look at that with best contributions of these people who are located on the continent but do much for the so much highlighting the work of the continent outside of the United States. So, yeah, there could be some level of privilege in terms of location, geographical mm-hmm. location, but I just want to emphasize that the contribution and the ambassadorial position goes both ways for those on the continent. And so, so, so with that long intro to answering your question, <laughs> um, why, why, why did I, why did I uh, decide? You're right. I think for me it was just the, the desire for knowledge. Mm-hmm. That I would, uh, that's, I destroyed that explanation, the desire for knowledge. Like mm-hmm. I said, I finished all school. I thought, oh, well, there's something else. I need to know. I don't feel, f- 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 I don't feel like I'm filled with knowledge yet. Mm-hmm. And, and so I went on. And, and I must say, uh, for the record, that 
um, I didn't practice long enough in Ghana, if at all. So yeah. I think that also was an easy one to to go because right. So you weren't leaving. Yeah. You weren't leaving yeah. much. Yes, exactly. I wasn't mm. leaving much. I was leaving much in the sense of family and the roots. But you're right. This was at an early age in my life, going to a foreign land. Um, and, you know, I had been to the U.S. before, so it wasn't foreign in the sense of the place. And I'm really going on and having to begin to find your roots and find yourself and understanding how systems work and even rewriting. You know, I had to rewrite my English. I, I'm I was training the British English and coming to the American English and having to do away with the you when I spell certain words. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, it's never a problem for me because the computer autocorrects you anyway to remove the you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if you set your computer on the English, uh, the American English, yeah, it would, it would do that for you. But all of those, and I must say, it's still, it's still a learning process. So, mm. It, it was a decision for knowledge, really, and then things just kind of flowed from there to where I am today. I, I mean, you speak about America and it not being so foreign, but your culture would indeed be foreign to the American culture. How did that mm-hmm. sort of happen? Because, uh, you, you know, I tried to live in a different country before, and it, it happened to be the UK, and mm-hmm. and and and. The, the the difference in, in the cultures, I was meant to be there uh, longer. After a month, I came back. And therefore, this idea of culture seems like a light and it's sort of, you know, it's not a big deal, but it's huge. How did you sort of, as a Ghanaian, uh, be accepted in, in America, both culturally, both, you know, in, in every respect? How did you find yourself where many years later you are able to say, I'm still in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Culture, you know, so the the sense of not being foreign means, for example, that I had been here before. So, mm. you know, the first time I came to the U.S., I must tell you, it was really foreign. Mm. Despite the many American movies I had watched, but just to see everything so big. And I went to the um, the uh, grocery store and I looked at the tomatoes and the peppers, and I thought, is this right? It was so huge. <laughs> and I was like, this is not right. Because, you know, in Ghana, it's organic, it's, it's good. <laughs> I looked, and I couldn't eat the, the peppers and the food. I thought, this is not right. So that was kind of the culture. Super-sized tomato. Right. <laughs> exactly. I still remember that time, the first time. Um, so you're right, that culture, and I think that maybe, I, if you would allow me to add the word X, to the culture and make it cultures because as you know every single culture whatever we call culture it's it's an amalgamation of many different cultures that Mm. kind of come together to make that what we may call culture and we may also call it maybe an amalgamation of different norms and practices Mm. that over time become this thing we call culture so the other thing is that culture is also very, very dynamic. So what could be culture today could be something else tomorrow. So as somebody living in the United States and being a Ghanaian, that gives me some uh, Ghanaian culture, and being African, that also gives me a certain things I can call African culture. And then being the, the global or Afropolitan citizen, that also means that I have to you know, deal with these different cultures. But you're right. So it's it's a constant struggle. It's a constant juggling act you have to do. And in the United States, there are different cultures, not in terms of the people, but ways of being. There are African-American systems and cultures out there. 
the black cultures, which could mean involving blacks, Africans, Caribbean, and all of us, and also that certain cultural expectations and norms. So it's constantly having to shift and navigate and make sure that at the end of the day, for me, it's not so much the culture or cultures. It's about being the best person I can and being the best person I can for the people around me. And that's the kind of cultural ways in which I think. Let's talk, I mean, culture would would affect men and women alike. Let's talk about women and women-ness. How is it to be a woman in Ghana versus being a woman in the U.S.? Particularly Mm. a woman who is a professional, ambitious, occupies an important seat around the table. Mm. Um, being yeah, being being a, a woman, there are certain commonalities that maybe globally to some extent women can say we all identify with. So, for example, we might say that there's this global sisterhood, and therefore we can all go to the UN women and and talk about certain things. But you're right, and um, even in Ghana, as a woman, it's also a matter of age. So your your gender comes also with age. Um, as a young woman, as, you know, going up 15, 18, 20, 30, there are certain cultural expectations and norms and practices you have to embody. And then when you get to a certain age and a certain you know, class or whatever we want to call it, there are also certain expectations that you can, you're just, just supposed to follow, but then also those that you can afford not to worry about. So that, that also shifts. And then within Ghana, like many other places, there's also ethnic, ethnicity. I don't like to use the word tribe because etymologically it's um, anthropologically heavy laden. Mm-hmm. So my ethnicity coming from the northern part of Ghana, there are also certain expectations um, that come with being that northern person. And then religion. So all of these come in. So it's also very shifty and, and dynamic in Ghana. In the U.S., as you know, um, the, the history of, of black people in, in the U.S., in the history of black women in the U.S., have also gone through many phases and many changes. And so how do you, in all of these phases, being a black woman, in the space of whether it's an African or Caribbean or African-American, being a black woman uh, comes with extra uh, expectations. You have to do with the stereotypes, you have to do with the, the reconfiguration of your power as uh, being uh, you know, aggressive. So, for example, you may be called aggressive when you're just being and doing what assertive you do. mm. thank you thank mm. you for that word Mike good point mm. <laughs> assertive is a word I'm looking for oh, I, I'm allowed as a man to say this is not acceptable when you say exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. if I say it, there might be another word you use to describe me which is probably something to be in the United States <laughs> so start with a letter B um, in this uh, in this context so you're right all, all of those things have to be dealt with and you know how hard do you navigate that there's a many conversations that have women have had and many re- lots of research that has been done on that issue it's still an ongoing debate mm. but I just say that you have to know who you are and proceed, and proceed, and, and surround yourself with the right voices, with the right people, with the right um, spaces. But but I mean, how does a woman navigate those things? Um, um, where you know, and 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 I think I have to say this: where where it, it, there are lunches that are expected of you when you are knocking for opportunities, and 
yes, I can help you. Let's do lunch. Let's let's meet yeah. for drinks. Um, let's you know. So th- those. The, the, those situations where women are trying to progress, women are trying to advance their lives, and yet they have to contend with if if I'm not being sexually exploited or at least an attempt being made, I am I am my my role and my voice is silenced. If that's not happening, the very voice that I attempt to uh, 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 increase into this loudness is then interpreted as aggression. So in other words. No matter what I do, so I have all the problems that black people have, and and I also have those that come with being a woman. What 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 do I, as a woman in business, as a professional in academia, in wherever way I might find myself as a woman, um, what how do I navigate these issues? And I think a lot of women battle even with the question of if I report if I reported every single guy who made advances, you know, do I do that or is that in itself sort of uh, 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 anti-productive as it were it, 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 a tool what 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 tool if any do I employ as a woman to deal with these challenges mm-hmm. yeah you know I, I would like to avoid this what we call essentialism kind of looking at it as if all women's experiences are the same so in this context to answer your question um, I can't give a blanket response because mm. there's going to be different experiences and different ways of which those mm. um, things manifest, right? Uh, it may not be that it's a lunch, but it could manifest itself in another way. But to answer your question straight to the point, I think it's important that women talk to each other. Yeah. Because many times we may not know that others are going through it or have gone through the similar, similar situations. Once we talk to each other, we realize that it's not you. It's not something about you or your quote-unquote deficiency that is causing you to experience that. So once we talk to each other, those spaces allow us to know mm. and also map out strategies for dealing with it because we need to deal with it um, as a critical mass. And, you know, you know what's going on with the um, uh, Me Too movement. That's an indeed, indeed. The crystallization of women's voices mm. have led to this. And just to end on this point, that I want to make it clear that this Me Too movement, what most people don't know, is that it was started by an African-American woman, Tarana Burke, that most people don't know. And she was looking at it from the perspective of young black girls who were being sexually assaulted in her line of work. And this took up. So when we're talking about Me Too movement, and most people think it's um, it, it belongs to particular cultures. Mm-hmm. No, this was started by a, a black woman um, in the United States. I want to talk about you know um, the books that you've written and 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 what might have driven you to 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 write them and 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 and, and the noteworthy ones that 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 we've picked up are international courts and African women uh, judge um, unveiled narratives and the other one that you 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 wrote is gender and the judiciary in Africa um, from obscurity to parity and and all of these are live debates um they're live and very important debates and 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 from a south african context very much um live i mean i think the last time i checked the uh, our highest court in south africa the female representation uh there is is not the most impressive even though um you know when you look at other spheres for example uh parliament for example is most impressive where we probably have a just below or around 50% poli- a female uh, representation in parliament but in most sectors are judiciary included the 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 the, the stats are, are not very good 
Um, and, and, and there's another conversation that has been had in South Africa, which is if you look at the, the entry point into university and how many women or girls enter university, versus how many ultimately reach the pinnacle of their careers in law. The, the, the numbers are, are, are disturbing and, and, and therefore your books become very important to the discussion and, 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 and what strikes me as very important is that this is a conversation that's alive in South Africa, no doubt alive in Ghana and certainly um, where you are currently in the US. I want to take a break and when we come back, I continue my conversation uh, with Professor Japa Dawuni. We're back after this. The Law Report with Michael Matwening Bell, Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back. I'm still in conversation uh, with uh, Dr. Dawuni, who's joining me all the way from uh, Washington, D.C. by telephone. And um, we, we, before we took a break, I threatened to, to talk about the, the books that you've written, one of which you've co-written with a colleague. Um, and maybe let me pick up on the first one, which is The International Courts and African Women Judge, Unveiled Narratives. What is that book about and what, what did you seek to achieve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So I, 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 I'm going to have to go back a bit. And just, you know, I don't destroy your, your line of questioning a bit. Mm. Was that the book you mentioned, The International Courts and African Women Judge, is the latest of the two or the later of the two. Mm, so mm. that one grew out of the first one. Okay. Um, gender and the judiciary in Africa. So if I can do a little bit, kind of flip your question. Maybe start with that one because I do see that the the, the, the other one is 2016 and the and, and the one I've just yes. mentioned is 2018. Maybe let's start with gender and the judiciary in Africa from obscurity to parity. All right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I finish your PhD, you, you know you want to go into academia. One of the big things is that you must have a research agenda. Mm. My dissertation was on women's civil society organizing in a post-democratic Ghana. So like I said, it was still on women, but it was within the political space. And I, I fell back and I thought, okay, what is going to be my research? What did I really want to find out about? And I remembered, and I tell people that it was like, I just remembered, hey, wait a minute, you're a lawyer. Right, or you were a lawyer before you became a political scientist. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that is really my first love, law. So I, I started looking around and just thinking, who are the women lawyers in Ghana, the judges and all that? And so I started doing research about it. I couldn't find information. And of course, I found a lot of information written about women in the United States or in the UK, Canada, and you know, other countries. And the more I dug on the African context, I couldn't find anything substantive. So that was how I started. I just got to Ghana, started interviewing judges, and it rolled out into an article. And then from an article, I decided, where are the African women's voices? I want to know more. And so that led to the first book, Gender and the Judiciary in Africa. And as you can see, the, the subpart of the title is From Obscurity to Parity, with a question mark. Because it's the idea or the question of women in the judiciary in Africa has been obscure for a long time. Mm. There's a little bit of research that had been done here and there, and we it was so obscure. But we found out from the volumes, uh, the chapters in this book, that a lot of the places where progress has been made, and so that is where our, the question of parity came in with a question mark. When we say parity, are we just looking at numbers, mm. or are we looking at something beyond numbers? Mm. So that is where the, the research developed, and I thought. After this book, and then I, an article I co-wrote um, with a colleague in 2015 called Her Leadership Chief Justice, looking at women chief justices and presidents of constitutional courts across Africa, we realized that a high number of women, at that time about 15, right now we have over 20 of them, 
um, have been in the top leadership positions in judiciaries in Africa. So once again, without knowledge, without data, sometimes we undercut ourselves, thinking that, oh yeah, it's Africa, it can't be possible. And I see these people talking about, well, there's only one or two female chief justices. And I said, no, look at the long durée. And within the African context, it's important to look at the fact that we are talking about from the mid-1960s, mm-hmm. where most African countries gained independence. Mm-hmm. So if you compare the period from 1960s to now, if you look at the progress that has been made in some countries, and compare that to the you know, westernized or OECD countries who have had over 200 years of existence in terms of democracy, I would say that comparatively, the African context has done much, much better. The British colonized many countries, including Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, but we have placed women in top leadership positions before the judiciary of the Great Britain did. Mm. We have had women in leadership positions as chief justices. That hasn't happened in the U.S. yet. Mm. Canada, they have had, but not in the U.S. Mm. So when you compare that, there is some progress, but there's still a lot to be done. So building up on that book, I decided that if the numbers are impressive or looking impressive in some places, what is happening? I looked at the international level. And, you know, going back a bit, that was when I visited, uh, I was a visiting scholar at the University of Copenhagen, their I-Court project to work on, you know, the whole Africa-ICC, International Criminal Court relationship. And as I dug into the research and I started thinking, wait a minute, there are quite a good number of African women on the ICC. So that led me to write a paper on women, on African women on international court. And that built into the second book, which is the one you asked me about, International Courts and African Women Judge. Mm. And that book chronicles the life of seven African women who have been at that time on international court. And there are many more than that now. And let me just add and end by saying that at the ICC in particular, the International Criminal Court, the highest number of women from any region of the world has been from the African continent. Hmm. Europe has had the highest number of men, but the lowest number of women. Hmm. So what does that tell us? Is, is that we? This is the birthplace of of serious international lawyers globally, um, because yeah. it means that comparatively speaking, we're producing more female jurists at an international level than our counterparts across the world, which is which is something I certainly would never have guessed. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah. And no. just to add, sorry, mm. the African Court on Human and People's Rights, based in Arusha, Tanzania, has the highest number of women judges um, of any court presently. The, the last count, there about 55% of the court is made up of women, mm. and that is not. I haven't seen data from any other court um, around the world that has that high percentage of women. So, you know, to answer the question, sorry, uh, briefly about. The contestation, there is contestation. You know, like you mentioned, in, in South Africa, you still have issues of uh, attrition rates, you still have issues of women getting into leadership. But I'm not also comment South Africa that, you know, you have a woman who is the president of um, the uh, Supreme uh, Court of uh, Appeal. Uh, Supreme Court of Appeal, mm. uh, Judge Mandisa Maya. Mm-hmm. Um, so there hopefully is some progress being made, but you know, with South Africa is a special case because you don't, you're not dealing only with a gender issue; you're also dealing with a racial issue. So that also leads to the different level as compared to other parts of Africa where we don't deal with a racial issue, maybe other forms of identity. 
I'm speaking uh, to Professor Japa Dawuni, if you've just tuned in, and we're really just covering um, all the topics from, you know, her, her life um, growing up in Ghana and her career uh, today across the world, and, uh, and more importantly, um, some of her writings and her contribution to, um, you know, the, our, our judiciary and knowledge of what it is that we, we, are, doing, we are doing out there. Now, I mean, that's, it's an impressive sort of point of view to get that we actually, at an international scale, are doing so wonderfully. But, but, but is this sort of a moment for us to, to celebrate or, or, or do we have some way to go still? And if so, where do we go? Yeah, so yeah, right, Mike. Um, I don't. I don't think that we necessarily have to celebrate, like you said. You know, mm. uh, Zimbabwe has the high percentage of women in their judiciary, over fifty percent. Zambia has over fifty percent. Um, Ghana, I think, we're still portraying around uh, thirty-five or forty percent. Um, but you, we also have to be mindful of places like uh, Mauritania, where the women are not necessarily allowed into judiciary. Um, in Egypt. And mm. a, a colleague, someone I know personally who was on the board of the institute and the advisory council of the institute, um, Omnia Gadala, um, she is fighting for women to be allowed to be judges in Egypt. Mm. And she'll be somebody maybe interesting to talk to. She set up a whole project called her Anna Setting the Bar mm. that would, and they've been suing, they just had a hearing with the Constitutional Court last week to allow women to be judges in Egypt. So, um, you know, then you compare the case of Egypt to neighboring countries like Algeria and Tunisia, where they have, uh, you know, over fifty percent, close to fifty percent of women as judges. So it really is very, very different within different regions. But to answer your question, so we still have to continue the the struggle. I don't want to call it a fight. The struggle mm. <laughs> to have women equitably allowed into these positions and judicial leadership positions. Another question we may want to ask is what happens when they get there? Do they have those equal opportunities and are they really able to contribute and and be allowed to be in those positions? Let me also say Mm. that... Sorry, before you you make the second point, I just wanted to note the name um, um, of of the lady you're saying is fighting for uh, in Egypt for the plight of of um, would-be yeah. women judges? Yeah, she's Omnia. So O-M-N-I-A. Omnia, yeah. Yeah. Gadala, G-A-D-A-L-L-A. Got you, yes. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. And your yeah. second point? Yeah. So, no, we don't We don't have to worry. So, you know, there are still spaces where we need to. And at the international level, one very important thing that's coming up next month in November is the, inter- the election of new judges in the International Court of Justice, which, as you know, is the primary organ of the UN. The International Court of Justice over over 70 years ago, this five years going on, it's going on 75 next year. Over 75 years of this court, we have had only four women judges. And of the four, the first woman from the continent of Africa, before her, there were 14 African men. But the first woman from the continent of Africa, from the country of Uganda, got on that court in 2012. She's mm. up for re-election or, you know, to be possibly re-elected with the elections coming up next month. So that is something that we also need to talk about. There are, of course, two other contenders, one from Nigeria and one from Rwanda. So African nations also have to have a discussion about we put a first woman on this court. All the men before her 
were re-elected or re or endorsed by the African Union. But in this particular case, this judge, Judge Julia Sebetinde, has not been officially endorsed by the African Union. So what are we doing mm. if we really want to enforce gender equity? Mm. Not to say that the two other contenders shouldn't be given the opportunity, but if they've done the past endorse the men for a second thing and they're not doing it for the woman, is it a question of gender discrimination? And, 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 you know, as, as you're speaking, one of the things that I wondered as a young man growing up when I thought about how whites came to oppress us and, and how things came to be is I've always wondered how that happened when we, particularly in the context of South Africa, how that happened when we are the majority, when there was more black people. And if you take South Africa as a context, there would have been less than 10% white people who managed to um, oppress, take land, and do all of that. But at that stage, I didn't understand the power of gunpowder. And as I grew older, I I then came to understand why uh, oppression of the majority by a minority was possible. One of the things that I struggle in my adult life, which, which, you know, could also come from a place of naivete is, how is it that when you take South African context, we have more women than we do men? And yet the, the, the struggle continues. The struggle is still yet more difficult and the progress is, 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 is small. And if you take voting power, the people that must vote for a woman to stand in, in that court is political, is a political power. Mm. And we have, our women have political power in South Africa. How is it that despite what appears to me, and I, and I qualify it to say it could be from my perspective of naivete, how is it that these things continue to happen when, when on paper women should have a voice? Yeah. Uh, you know, there are many factors, but I'll just pick on a few and, and, and keep it short and sweet. Is that it's a matter also of, uh, you know, you know this. In, in South Africa, there's been a lot of discussion about decolonization of knowledge mm. and systems. And so it's a decolonization of our minds. What most people don't know or may not be aware is that if you look at a traditional African system, women were allowed strong, powerful leadership positions and decision-making processes. Contrary to what a lot of the anthropological studies and the popular media and movies have shown, kind of constantly painting the African women as, as weak and passive and lacking in authority and making a look as if patriarchy is an African thing. Patriarchy is a global problem. And if you look at the studies that have been done within the African context, mostly by not only, you know, mostly by African scholars who are trying to bring out the voice and re-engineering our knowledge system, you find that African systems have powerful positions for women. And I can go down the list of historical uh, names, but I don't like to do that because when we do that, it sounds as if we are romanticizing it, even mm. though it's true. And for me, you know, the book... Um, International Course of African Women Jazz, one of the things that I say in the introduction is that this book and these judges are the Amazons of the past years. These are going to be women that I want people to look at and say, I want to be like her. Mm. If she came out of a village in Uganda, a village in, in Zambia, and she was able to get to the international level, she's a powerful woman and I want to be like her. Mm. 
So the idea of gender, we have to look at the gender reconstruction that happened under colonial rule in much of Africa and under apartheid in South and Southern Africa. And figure out, and you know, that explains, like what you said, the powerful role that we see uh, women occupying in, in South Africa, even though there's still a lot that needs to be done to allow women's voices to be fully heard. So that, that re-engineering, re-education, going back to our roots and really understanding what the African systems or gender systems and roles are. And just to end on the note that we need to make men and also we women aware that feminism, womanism, women's rights is not a Western concept. If you're talking about an African feminist perspective, African women have been at the center of it, fighting in war. In Ghana, we had Yasantua who fought against the British. In South Africa, you had your powerful women who fought against apartheid in different spaces. Mm. So that is what we need to be reminding ourselves. And to also know that, like I said, it is not a fight. If we women and men hold it together, who benefits? We all do. So gender equality for me, I call it gender solidarity. The African notion of Ubuntu, of working together, of communality, that is what we are advocating for and not because we want to push men on the side. I like that, Some gender solidarity. A few of them. <laughs> yeah, a few <laughs> of them have to be pushed on the side. <laughs> um, but the idea really, a woman will tell you that it's not about power. It's about working together for the common good of our communities, our countries, our continents. Wow. That's the uh, conclusion, I'm afraid, of my interview with Professor uh, Japa Dawuni. Uh, Prof, thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed um, the conversation. I think that there was so much more still we could cover, but um, you know, time not allowing, we, we, we can't cover the, the broad scope of all the matters to be dealt with. But, but um, you know, I think on behalf of all of us here back home, um, we, we, we are very proud of what you've been doing. We're very proud of um, every word and every book because it's the book that sort of creates this thing that we are well short of which is the codification of our success and our progress and mm. and I think that you know we're very pleased that you've taken the moment to capture today so that tomorrow the girl the boy can say but I am from these people who did this yeah. Thank you very much, Mike, for the opportunity. It's been wonderful chatting with you as well, and I look forward to engaging some other time. And thank you to all the listeners who took time to listen to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that's uh, Professor uh, Dawuni uh, from uh, uh, Howard University, Assistant Professor of Politics there, but also um, started off as, as a lawyer, and I think once you're a lawyer, you remain a lawyer. Um, it's not one of those things where um, you stop you stop becoming. You, you become a lawyer one time and it's a, it's a title you carry. So indeed, uh, you can look forward to my conversation with uh, Professor Dawuni uh, and check it out on our podcast. It's available um, on our KFM uh, website. You can just visit that and, and share it if you will. Uh, from me, Michael Mutoning Bill, I th- hope that you found that enlightening, inspiring. I'm back again next Wednesday. Good night.